Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Chad Randall at Life Story Church. We are a grassroots church located in the heart of the Bellevue community in Nashville, Tennessee. Our services are streamed live on Facebook and YouTube every Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time. We would love for you to join us. Now here's Pastor Chad Randall. Happy Memorial Day weekend, guys. Uh, What a blessing it is that we enjoy this freedom that uh, those men and women that we remember today paid the ultimate price for. Amen? Amen. What a good thing to remember. So... We're going to continue our study into Ephesians today. Uh, We took a break last week, uh, actually a couple weeks, but we're going to jump right back into it. So I hope you've got your Bible ready. We're going chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We're going to be in chapter two today. Uh, As we say for the theme of this uh, sermon series, welcome to the new you, right? Welcome to the new you. Jesus Christ has risen. He has ascended. You've put your faith and trust in him, right? Amen. And now he has sent you into the world. You were once darkness, but now, now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. The next few weeks, we're going to, as we continue this study, will be identity setting. Hear me, identity setting. This study will call and instruct us to be who we are destined to be. I'm talking about destiny right now. It's a big deal, right? Because ultimately, church, the key to your destiny is that you see yourself the way that he sees you. When God the Father looks at you, when Jesus Christ looks at you, how he sees you is how you should see you. As a matter of fact, it's impossible to step into the work he's calling you to if you don't see you how he sees you. So this is an important issue, a destiny issue. But let's begin uh, with uh, uh, some some, uh, fundamentals. Let's look at an outline of Ephesians for you uh, Bible students. And I see this first graphic. This is our basic outline of uh, Ephesians that we've been working through. Ephesians chapter 1 verse, uh, through chapter 3 is really all about doctrine, really what I'm talking about, our position, what we are now in Christ as a result of what he did, not what you did, and we'll get to that in a minute. But Ephesians chapter 4, as we move through those chapters, we're going to discover that we now have a duty, we have responsibilities. What should we do in response to what he has done for us, what he has made us to be? Paul balances doctrine with duty. We inherit the wealth by faith, and then we invest that wealth by works. That's a good way to look at it, okay? As we move through Ephesians chapter 2, we got into it a little bit last week, and I'm, gonna, I'm actually going to rewind the tape just a little bit and begin where we ended last week. So let's look at an outline of Ephesians chapter 2. We are raised and seated on the throne through chapters, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, as we look at the outline, what we were, what God did, then what we are now in verse 10. Verses 11 through 22, we are reconciled and set into the temple. We'll explain that as we get there. What the Gentiles were, specifically. What God did, and then what the Gentiles and Jews are now together. I don't think we'll get that far today, but we'll just see, okay? 
So chapter 1 emphasized our possessions in Christ, truly. Chapter 2 is going to emphasize now our position in Christ. So pay attention, because this is important for you as a believer. Because your position determines also your possessions and authority in the kingdom. Which it's funny to say that, because incidentally, while Paul is writing this and talking all about our position, possessions, and authority, Incidentally, he was in prisoner. He was a prisoner at the time that he wrote this letter. But the power that raised Christ from the grave and crowned him with glory and honor is the same power, church, and we need to get this, is the same power that now works in our own lives. Think about that for a moment. That is the same power that works in our lives, raising us from spiritual death and seating us with Christ in the heavenlies. Amen? So let's pick up where we left off last week, verse 4, shall we? But God. Remember that ending? I guess two weeks ago now. But God. Paul just went on to tell us how how lost we were and what big trouble we were in, and then he follows it up with verse 4. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, with with which he loved us, verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, underline that, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen? That's good news. But God, the most significant, eloquent, and inspiring transition in all of literature, if you ask me. No one else could have done it, church. No one else could have done it. No one else would have done it. Might be a better way to say it. It is greater to be loved, church, by the mighty sovereign of the universe than by any other human being on this planet. Do you know that? Great love, he said. His great, out of his great love, how great was his love? Well, examine the price which he paid. That's how you can measure it. In business, we say, you know, something is only worth what somebody else is willing to pay for it, right? Well, housing, housing prices are out of this world right now, especially in Nashville, right? That house is not worth that much money. Well, somebody just paid cash for it. I guess it is, right? That's another story, though, huh? You can't keep him from loving you. You can't, church. But you can turn your back on him, and you can refuse redemption. You can't keep the sun from shining, but you can get out of the sunshine, right? Even when we were dead in trespasses, verse 5 says, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He is our representative. Our representative. Not only for us, but as us as well. Wrap your mind around that. When he died, we died. You hear Paul's words here? When he died, we died. When he was buried, we were buried. And as a result, we are now quickened, quickened with Christ, raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenlies. Let's look at verse 6. And raised us up together. Raised us up together. 
and made us sit together in the heavenly places, in the Greek places, and it isn't there. It's just heavenlies. Together in the heavenlies, in Christ Jesus, in heavenly places, our position, our position already raised, that's you. Do you feel that way? Already raised, already delivered, no longer earthbound, that's you. Do you feel earthbound? Sometimes, right? Sometimes. You are no longer occupied now with the trivial and the transient of this life, are you? Sometimes. Verse 6, I love verse 6, because this is, this is actually a beautiful picture of what Paul is saying Jesus has done now. He's raised us up. He sat us with him in the heavenlies. It's reminiscent of Matthew chapter 23. This is, the only, I think, the only time I'm going to jump out of uh, Ephesians today. But Matthew 23, verse uh, 37 through 39, uh, write it down if you can't get there in time and you're taking notes. Uh, let me read this to you. It reads, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I think this will be familiar when I read it. The one who kills the prophets and stones, those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together. This is the heart of our Savior. As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. The sun's going to shine, but you can get in the shade, can't you? Are you willing? Are you willing? Verse 38, see, your house is left desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why is this reminiscent of what Paul's talking about? Because this is the gathering, those who have accepted Christ. He has gathered them up to him, himself together and seated you now already in the heavenlies. This is really, this verse in Matthew is a synopsis of all of history, if you really think about it. Can I see this next graphic? How so? Well, here's how so. Synopsis of all of history, the purpose of all of history. Jesus wanted to, he wanted to bring his people, his children to himself. And the tragedy is that they turned their back and they rejected him. However, there is a triumph in verse 39 when he says that you will see me, if you reverse engineer that, you will see him when everyone says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. For I say to you, you shall not see me, you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But guess what? There's good news because they will. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But truly isn't that a synopsis of all of history. But here we have in verse six of Ephesians, Jesus brings us, he gathers his people, his children. Verse 7, let's keep reading. In heavenly places in Jesus Christ, verse 7, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace, his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is the why. Why? Because in the ages to come, he wants to show us his riches, riches of his grace, his kindness towards us. The ages to come. Interestingly enough, in uh, the Greek text, verse 1 all the way through verse 7 comprises a single periodic sentence in the Greek. 
And it speaks directly to this grand plan that God has. What is the grand plan? Thinking of the synopsis of all of history, what is it? Why Adam in the garden? Really, why all of this in the first place, guys? Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes, I, sometimes do you ever just stand outside and look up at the sky, look down, pinch your arm, and be like, what is all this about, right? I mean, we're on this blue rock whipping around this giant ball of burning gas at how, who knows how many miles an hour, right? So we don't go flying off into the universe. Even at that, he's stretched out the heavens so we don't fly into the sun. Why all of this? Why all of this? Why Adam? Why this laborious, painful, crimson thread from Eden to Golgotha? Why? Well, how does God, being God, demonstrate infinite power, infinite knowledge? How does he do it? I'd say creation was a good way to do it, huh? But how does one demonstrate, on the other side of that coin, infinite love? How does he communicate love to you, his creation? What better way than redemption? Hmm? Free will, choice, and redemption. The cosmic demonstration, the secret behind all of the drama, right? this global drama of history, the lengths that he has gone to. Can I see this, this graphic? In the ages yet to come that he might show, Paul says, in the ages to come that he might therefore demonstrate his kindness, his kindness, guess what, towards us, his grace in his kindness. What is grace? His extension towards us, his hadiths, right? To lean towards us to come near us, his grace in his kindness towards us, the riches of his grace in his kindness towards us, and the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us. That's pretty thorough, isn't it? We are to testify to his glory. We are to testify to his glory just as his faithfulness to Israel. Verse 8, Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through, what's that word? Works, right? Performance? No. Faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It's a gift. This is good news, huh? I told you guys Ephesians is, you know, especially these first few chapters, got to be some of my favorite studying in the whole Bible. We got to get this down in here. We got to get it in here. This needs to be identity setting. This needs to be the lens through which we view this entire world. You hear me? I'm talking big picture today. I'm talking about this grand plan for man, the synopsis of all of history. Why? All of it. We've got to get it in here. This is who you are. This is why. This is why all of it. For you. Because he loves you. This is who you are now in 
him in Christ Jesus in what he has done. These three verses that I'm reading to you, starting with 8, about to read 9 and 10, hear me now. These are the clearest statement of the plan for salvation in the whole Bible. All right, you want the gospel? You want the plan for salvation, the gospel of grace? You're going to get it right here in verses 8, 9, and 10. The clearest statement of this uh, plan for salvation in the whole Bible, it originates with the grace of God. It is a gift of God, Paul says. It's his initiative, not your initiative. Given as a present possession for you to have even now. The way is through faith. The commitment of a person to the person. How often have you heard somebody in your family, somebody in your workplace, somebody in your realm of influence say, I, well, I think I'm going to go to heaven. I hope so, right? I hope I'll go to heaven. I've heard Christians come to me and say, well, I hope I'm, you know, I think I, you know, I do pretty good. I try, you know, in the church. If you have put your trust in Christ, you are saved. Do you hear me? There's no need to wonder. I know I'm preaching to the choir in this room, right? But maybe there's somebody watching online who doesn't quite get that down deep yet. If you have put your trust in Christ, then you are saved. See Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 for me on that one. Salvation can't be earned. We just read it. It is the gift of God. Do you earn a gift? It ceases to be a gift once you've earned it, right? So by definition, you cannot work for it and deserve it and earn it, okay? Not of works, verse 9 lest anyone should boast. Do you see that? Not of works. Let's see this next graphic. Let's break this down for you guys. I want to make this as clear as I possibly can. Has anybody in here ever been hurt by legalism? Anybody? Yeah? Everybody? So that's everybody, right? Have you been hurt, confused, had the word of God twisted, put on you, been made to feel guilty, been made to feel, I don't know, manipulated perhaps? By somehow tying your eternal salvation to performance or by making you fear that your eternal salvation may be in jeopardy because you aren't performing? Let's just, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna put a death nail into any of that right here. Are you ready? Let's look at this, not of works. What does not of works mean? Salvation cannot be earned by, are you ready for it? Confirmation. Well, I was confirmed in the Lutheran church when I was, however old I was, 13, I don't know. So I'm good, right? No, I'm sorry. Confirmation doesn't do it. How about baptism? Are you, can you just be saved because you're dunked in the water? Baptism? Nope. That is a work. Not of works. Salvation cannot be earned by baptism. And guess what? It can't even be earned by Good attendance and church membership. Hate to break it for you or to you. If that's why you're here this morning, we need to have it come talk to me after service. Hopefully, we're squaring this out right now. All right. Not of works. Salvation cannot be earned by church attendance. It cannot be earned by tithing. It cannot be earned by holy communion. Salvation cannot be earned by trying to keep the Ten Commandments. 
It cannot be earned by living by the Sermon on the Mount. Salvation cannot be earned by being a good neighbor. Well, I'm a pretty good guy, right? I'm no worse than the next guy. Salvation cannot even be earned by living a moral and respectable life. Because the wealth we are given as a gift, but then we invest it through works, right? So we strive to live a good and moral life, respectable life, but that will not save you. That is not enough. Let's see the next graphic. Let's keep going. Not by works. Man is not saved by works. Man is not saved. We're, we, we're just being very clarifying this to the 10th degree or whatever, whatever they say, right? Man is not saved by works. Man is not saved by faith plus works. Man is saved by faith alone because Jesus did it all. Say amen, church. Amen? Any, any attempt, and this is so important that we get this, because Paul talked about false gospels, other gospels, doctrines of demons, okay? And guess what those are? They're any other plan of salvation that varies and is corrupts and changes the plan of salvation through faith as a gift from God. So this next one is very important that we under, understand. Any attempt to add to his completed work is blasphemy. Any set of ideal that, okay, now I'm saved, but I've got to perform now and do good, be good, to stay saved is a different gospel and it's blasphemy. Now, we do good because we're grateful, because we see things differently. Our identity has been reset, and now we see who we are, where we're seated, and the life that he wants us to live. So we do it because we're compelled from a place in our heart that's inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit, not because we're afraid we'll lose our salvation. If I didn't do anything to, to earn the gift, how can I do anything to lose the gift? Do you understand the thinking? Any attempt to add to his completed work is blasphemy. It is a finished work. Every sin, past, present, and future is wiped off the map. He's dealt with it. He took the, key, the keys to hell and he set the captives free. It's done. We can add nothing to it. Salvation is a gift, not a reward. Not a reward. Why? Well, Paul just said it uh, here, didn't he? Uh, in verse 9. Well, he says it also in Romans chapter 3, verse 27. Why? <laughs> to make sure that we don't get the big head, as they say in the South, right? to make sure that pride and arrogance don't dominate us, to prevent us from boasting and thinking that we had anything to do with it, thinking that we somehow have a hand in deserving our salvation. We don't deserve it. He paid it all. You didn't pay it. You didn't do that on the cross. Jesus did that on the cross. You didn't bring the keys to hell and release the captives. Jesus did that. If a man could be saved by works, then think of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, Father, take this cup from me. If there's any other way, there is no other way. If a man could be saved by works, then Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane was unanswered in Matthew 26. 
Do you think it was unanswered? No. If a man can be saved by works, then the death of Christ was altogether unnecessary. Altogether unnecessary. And a man would be his own savior. Yet, we cannot save ourselves, can we? Idolatry is plainly forbidden in Exodus uh, chapter 30. Glory plainly is not to be shared with God our Father, plainly said in Isaiah 42. And God is not indebted to us. Think about this. If you have a hand in your salvation, then Jesus has got to be like, hey, I owe you one because you're my child. I love I want, you to, I want to bring you up here with me. I want you to seat, seat you in the heavenlies with me, but I'm going to need your help, right? No, no, no. Man has not saved himself. Let's keep reading verse 10. Verse 10. This is good stuff, huh? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I love this. That, that word uh, workmanship, I think it's on the screen, is the word uh, poema. Poema in the Greek. And it's the same word that we get our word poem from. So you are his poem. You are the poem of God. How cool is that? His workmanship, this word uh, only appears elsewhere in the New Testament once in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, and it is used of God's creation. We are his poem. The handiwork of God, his handiwork, not of ourselves. We are his masterpiece, Paul even goes on to say in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 17. Our conversion to Christ is not the end of the story. It's the beginning of your new life in him. It's only the beginning. Hmm. I like to think of it like this. The works are the fruit of salvation, not the root of salvation. The fruit, not the root, okay? Works are the consequence, in other words, not the cause of our acceptance in Christ. Amen? We work because we are saved, not to be saved, not in order to earn it. Works demonstrate, James uh, said it in James chapter 2, verse 14 through 26, the summary of that would be, works really just demonstrate the reality of our faith. You understand? What kind of works? Well, works, Paul just said it, that he even prepared for you beforehand. So he died on the cross for your sin. He rose from the grave. He said, put your faith and trust in me, and I will lift you up, raise you up, and seat you in heavenly places with me at the right hand of God, right? He said, I will do that. You do that, your heart is sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. We read a couple of weeks ago and studied in chapter 1, right? Sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now what do we see? Not only that, but the good works that he does want you to do and to walk into as a result of your faith, not as the cause of your faith, but as the result of your faith, the good works that he wants you to do, he's even prepared those for you. 
So you don't even have to say, God, what do you want me to do? I don't know what to do. I can't find anything to put my hands to. I don't know who to help. I don't know who to tell the gospel to. It just comes to you. Are you do, do me this favor. Are you looking around in your realm of influence for, for ways that God wants to use you, people that God wants you to speak to? Because I'm telling you, he's bringing people in and out of your realm of influence constantly that are dying for the truth, like a thirsty man in the desert and the gospel is a drink of fresh water, right? Or a fellow believer who needs a word of encouragement, Right? or needs help in some physical, tangible way. We got to have our eyes wide open. But what kind of works? Hmm. What's our responsibility in this? Simple. To find his will for us and to obey it. Can you do that? Are you up for that? How? How do we do that? We've got to... Got a few jumping off points for you. It's not a complete list, but maybe this will help out. Confess and forsake sin as soon as we're conscious of it. Makes sense, doesn't it? Confess and forsake sin as soon as we're conscious of it. Now, don't get me wrong here. There are some preachers out there on TV that'll say, unconfessed sin is unforgiven sin. Well, they turn the confession thing into a work then for salvation, right? Uh-uh. I don't know. We can, by confessing our sin, we're aware of our, how much more we need grace and how much bigger the work is that Christ accomplished for us. By understanding our weakness and admitting our weakness, we understand we need a, need a Savior, right? It's not until man understands how desperate his situation is that Christianity begins to talk, right? So we confess and forsake sin as soon as we're conscious of it. Be continually and unconditionally yielded to him. Yield your heart to him, your life to him, your rebellion to him. Just lay it down. Study the word of God to discern his will and then do whatever he tells you to do. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you. He's sealed your heart. He's within you. Spend time in prayer every day. Respond to opportunities for service as he leads. Cultivate the fellowship and counsel of other Christians. Amen? Why? Why do all of this? To glorify God. Matthew chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Colossians chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 2, Hebrews chapter 13, all says do this. Why? To glorify God. It's simple. In the previous 10 verses, Paul discussed salvation in general. Okay, as we move forward now, uh, he's going to shift his focus a little bit. Uh, now he focuses on the work of Christ for the Gentile in particular. And I don't, we might get to it, but I, we're doing pretty good on time. We'll see. <laughs> We'll see if we don't get to all of it today. He's going to focus on the Gentile here for a minute, and that will really make sense when he brings in the Jew and the unification of the two, okay? So we'll see how far we get. Uh, Let's read verse 11. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcised by what is called the circumcision 
made in the flesh by hands. Now, let me break this down to you a little bit because most of us were not raised Jewish in Jewish homes practicing Judaism, okay? And we might not fully understand what this circumcision is all all about. You've got to understand culturally in this moment that Gentiles were despised, all right? Gentiles were despised. Uncircumcision, basically by saying the uncircumcised, it was a term of reproach, okay? Now, contrast that with circumcision, which was a sign of God being one of God's chosen people. So uncircumcision, term of reproach. Circumcision means you are one of God's chosen people. Uh, you're set apart simply by this physical trait that you carried, all right? It had nothing else to do with even the heart at that point. When, the, when they're speaking of the circumcision at this time, the Pharisees, all of that, it's the physical sign, okay? It's an outward sign versus the inward reality, okay? Circumcision, you got to understand, was not proof of real faith of the heart. It was just a sign that you were of the chosen people. The Jews enjoyed a great privilege before God. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 9. Uh, so I guess, is it any surprise that, you know, pride and arrogance became their downfall? Probably not, right? But really, they enjoyed the greatest racial and religious difference the world has ever known. Truly. Paul was a Pharisee. Think about that. That was the most exclusive club of the most exclusive people, and a Gentile was a foreigner, a foreigner, not of that club. Remember, uh, Rahab was an Amorite. Ruth was a Moabite. They weren't supposed to marry them, but they did anyway because that ties in the story of grace. And so the New Testament of grace revealed, concealed in the Old Testament. But since Noah, no covenants were ever made with Gentiles. That's why this mystery of the gospel thing is so, was so blowing the Jewish mind at the time. So the blessing that we have, the covenant that even today, to this day, the covenant that we have with God through Jesus Christ is through the Abrahamic covenant. We are grafted in. Abraham, the man of faith, thus our faith, we're grafted into the covenant through that. So... So we need to understand that, the difference between Gentile, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. Let's keep reading that. Verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. So hopefully that makes a little bit more sense having explained that. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, that's the nation, and strangers from the covenants of promise. That's where you were, okay? At that time, you were without Christ. That's where the position you were in. You had no hope, and without God, you were without God in the world. Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel regarding God's or man's separation from God. The Messiah, remember, was promised to the nation of Israel. Blessings were promised to the Gentiles in Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 60, but generally this phrase here, understand, without God in the world does not mean that they were atheists, okay? They weren't atheists. They had all kinds of pagan religions that, that they practiced that dated all the way back to Babylon, all right? They were godless in their conduct, essentially. 
these Gentile nations, godless in their conduct. They had no real knowledge of the living God. This refutes, by the way, any notion that pagan religions are just acceptable to God as the Christian faith, okay? Because he's saying that they were practicing these pagan religions, and plainly God said that you were, you were without God. They were, they were worshiping the goddess Diana, Baal, whatever it was, right? These Gentiles were worshiping. They're still considered without God in the world. So you can't, this whole universalism thing that's on the rise right now, that, well, you know, God of Islam, you know, kind of the same thing, you know. The God of the Jews and Islam, the same thing. They just think you picked a different brother. No, 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 no. And all paths do not lead to the same place, all right? <laughs> Did you like that voice? I did. Where'd that come from? <laughs> the Gentiles, also interesting point, is Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 points out that the Gentiles knew the true God, but they deliberately refused to honor him. Whoa. So the first 11 chapters of Genesis, by the way, are essentially a saga of, I guess, what, devolution, right? <laughs> Not evolution. We always like to talk about the evolution of man and, and institutions of higher thinking these days, right? The evolution of man and his thinking and his spiritual whatever. No, basically the first 11 chapters of Genesis are all about the devolution of man as he reaches the most base element of existence. In Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is called, and the Jews were then separated so that the Gentiles might also be saved and bring them all back together. But let's look at this. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, uh, basically outlined for us the predicament that we were in, that mankind was in, all right? Let's check out this. Uh, the predicament... Summary of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, we have this graphic, without, without Christ. So you were without Christ. What else were they? Aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Strangers from the covenants of promise. Had no hope. And without God in the world, quite a predicament, wouldn't you say? So was your predicament before you found Jesus Christ. Then comes verse 13. Then comes verse 13 to us. But God. There it is again. There it is again. Here's your predicament. But God. Now, but now, in Christ Jesus, but now, in Christ Jesus, you were you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen? Amen. But now, again, it parallels a new class, neither Jew nor Gentile. This is really a prelude for chapter 3 that we'll get into. Verse 13 sums up the Gentiles' conditions in two words. Far off. Far off. While the problem 
of sinners in general was covered in all verses 1 through 10. It was spiritual death. The problem of the Gentiles in particular was spiritual distance from God and spiritual distance from his blessings. Hmm. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. And I'm going to leave that there for today because if I get into this whole next section, I'd rather end early than get into a section that's going to make me run too long. So, welcome to the new you, huh? You were once in darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. It's a good time to do some personal inventory, I think, guys. It's a good time to do some personal inventory. Are you still bound by the habits of your former life in the graveyard of sin? That's where you were. That was your former predicament. Or are you raised and seated on the throne? We'll invite Leith forward as we close. Let me ask you this, and this might be the best question to ask you. Do you practice your position in Christ? Hmm? You can take that a million different ways. You can take that into a million different rooms. You can take that into a million different relationships. You can take that into how you view your life in general. You can take that into, into the room you walk into for a job interview, right? What is this life all about? What is all of this really for in the first place? Why Adam? Why this painful, and, and painful even more so to God than even to us? Experiment, experience, whatever you want to call it. Why all of this? Why? Because he wanted to create you, you understand. He wanted to create somebody he loves and that somebody is you. And he wanted you to know him. Here's the thing. He is love. God is love. How can you know God? How can you truly know God? You want to know God? Anybody want to know God? Show of hands, yes? You got to know love. You have to be able to love. You have to know what it is. If you, wanna, if you have to be able to do it, to know it, and if you want to know him, well, how can you love? How can you love? You have to have free will. It's a choice. Remember that old Bonnie Raitt song, I Can't Make You Love Me? I'd sing it, but you know, it'd be terrible. I can't make... Oh, sorry. sorry. I can't make you love me if you won't, Right? That's the nature of love. It's a choice. I choose to. I do. Love isn't a feeling. It's something you decide to do. Okay? So you choose or you don't choose. But when you choose, don't we know how beautiful it is? God has chosen you. He's chosen you. He's chosen to love you. And you choose to love God. You choose to love a husband, a wife, or whatever, right? 
a mom, a dad, people in our lives, relationships that we have, we choose to love. So he had to give us choice. And in doing so, some, though the sun is shining, they climb under a tree. Though he loves, they turn their back on him still. That's not what he wanted, but it was the only way. It was the only way. It was the only way that you would truly know him or could ever possibly truly love him. So understanding all of this, what he has done for you, what he has now offered you, done for you, given you in grace by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Don't go get in the big head. This is not what you did. It's what I did for you because I love you. I'm demonstrating love to you. So you'll know how to do it. So you'll see it. And you can, you can multiply it. Now you can do it. Because I've enabled you to do it. I've shown you how to do it. This is who you are. This is what it's all about. And this is why it, why it is. And this is how he sees you. Do you practice your position in Christ in your relationships? in your expectations, in your realm of influence. He has worked for you. He has worked for you. Now let him work through you, will you? Amen? That he might lead you in your own grand adventure, right? Oh, church, that's where we have to get. That's where we have to get and surrender everything else and just press into him, that's when he can truly open up. Talk about a grand adventure, the plans and purpose and destiny that he has for you, but you got to get it here. You got to see it. You got to know it and you got to believe it here, right here. With every eye closed and every head bowed, if you're here this morning and maybe you have found yourself sucked into some ideas that maybe had roots in childhood or just roots in, your, in our flesh because it's in our flesh you understand. Our flesh understands if I work, I get a paycheck, so I need to do good to get good. But Jesus flips the script and says, do bad, get good. What? If you have been led into a line of thinking in, in, in your conscious, subconscious thought, somehow tying your salvation and your relationship with God back to performance, I want you to cut that tie. I want you to cut that string. I want you to let go of it. That's not how he views you. That's not how he sees you. That's not what he's expecting from you. You're his now. You put your faith and trust in him. You're his child. Whether my children behave behave well or not, they're still my kids, right? But you know what? I want them to strive to behave well out of respect and love for me. That's our position now. That's our position now. So if that's you and you've been struggling, struggling with identity, struggling the simple truth of the gospel. And you need, you need to drink that back in like a glass of cold, fresh water. Raise your hand and drink it in. You put it right back down. Thank you. Thank you. 
God is good. If you're here this morning and you're needing to cut some ties, you're needing to walk in that position a little bit more, maybe you've been slack or lax, lackadaisical even, if that's you, raise your hand, you can put it right back down. Thank you. Whatever it is you're bringing to the throne, just bring it down, lay it down. Let's pray, church. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for the way that you love us, Lord Jesus. We thank you that that you know what we struggle with already. And that you've given us victory and even that, and that there's no temptation that is seized us that is not common to man, no temptation that will overcome us. We surrender and we give it to you, God. We want to walk in our position. We want to walk in our true identity. We want to walk as sons and daughters of God, of yours. So lift our heads, lift our hearts, Lord Jesus. Inspire us, encourage us, Lord. Teach us to truly see ourselves as you see us, seated in the heavenlies at the right hand, washed in the blood of Jesus not by our works, but by what you have done, that we are there. And lead us and guide us now, Lord Jesus, into the works that you have prepared for us, Lord. Let us walk through this life with eyes wide open, looking with expectation for ways to serve you and to glorify your kingdom, Lord Jesus. Bless us with that, that we would bless you and be blessed by you for it and in it. In Jesus' name. We always close with a prayer of salvation for those who maybe have, maybe this is the first time they've heard that true gospel. They've only ever heard a legalistic, false, twisted gospel of performance and works. Maybe you're here or maybe you're watching this online. But let's do this. If that's you and you want to say that prayer, with every eye closed one more time, just raise your hand. You can put it right back down. Thank you. And if you're watching this at home and you saw and you're raising your hand, please message us so we can pray with you. Let's say this prayer out loud as a church family. Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. I believe you rose from the grave on the third day. And I believe I live because you live. Thank you for what you've done. I put my trust and faith in you. That that work was enough. And that I'll be with you. And am with you. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. May the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you. May he pour out favor and grace upon you. May you enjoy this weekend. Go in grace. Prosper in all you do. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you, guys.